This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about risky debt cycles. And this is going to be an interesting uh, segment because we're specifically talking about payday loans and the amount of risk that's out there uh, around payday loans. Uh, it's so interesting because it, when, when it comes to alternative borrowing, lots of debt experts caution payday loans are among the riskiest types of debts to have. And, and yet they seem, Blair, that they're so much more available than they ever were before. Uh, the, the offices and the places that you can go to to uh, do payday loans um, are considerable, right? I mean, it seems like it's a growing industry to me. Oh, yes, Elaine. There's, there's just tons, whether it's brick and mortar, um, places popping up all the time, you know, some very you know, large national banners, some, you know, very small regional, maybe just a single location or two. Uh, even online, you can find, you know, payday lenders these days. So it's, it's very easy to get into the into this type of debt. Um, and payday loans are typically, they're a special type of debt. It's usually your last resort. So it's, it's what you go to yeah. when, you know, typically you've been turned down for a bunch of other types of debt that, you know, might have better terms. Uh, and the big challenge with payday loans uh, is that they're very addictive. So I've said before, there's a crack cocaine of borrowing. Um, you, you get one, you need a second, you need a third. I see people with 10 to 15 different payday loans moving money around crazily each month, just trying to keep all the balls in the air. Uh, so the challenges are the interest rate is so high, all the costs and the fees, that often when you have one, you need to take out a second or a third to actually pay off the cost of just that first loan, and it creates a vicious cycle. So it's very, as you said, risky financing, and I'm really happy today we're going to delve into a bunch, um, you know, the numbers, the structure, how these work, uh, and hopefully give people some good insights that will help them try to avoid using this type of financing. Okay, well, let's, let's start with the actual payday loan, how it's set up uh, and, how, and how it works. How, why is it, you know, how it becomes so risky for the borrower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a payday loan, so it's offered, you know, usually physically in store, but now online, and it's by privately owned companies. So this isn't, um, you know, your large banks, typically, it's not a government organization, it's a private organization that just starts off to offer payday loans. And they are subject to provincial regulations. So it's a short term loan, and the regulation state, you can borrow up to $1,500. Um, the objective is a payday loan, it's meant to cover a cash shortfall for a short period. So the idea is, like the name, it's in between your paydays, you're going to pay it off of your next paycheck. Uh, and in BC, that's up to $1,500. You've got up to 62 days to pay your payday loan back. So it's not supposed to be long-term financing. Uh, and if you don't repay your payday loan, plus the interest and the fees, you face even more interest and fees. So what about an installment loan? Is that the next piece that we want to talk about in relation to this? Because how is yeah, that so- different? 
Well, that's important for people to know that payday lenders started off a number of years ago and they were just payday loans. They were just the $1,500, pay it back in up to 60 days, and that was their, their bread and butter. Now, what I've seen in the last couple of years, especially, is just an explosion in what's called installment loans with all the big payday lenders doing this. Uh, and it's typically for an amount larger than that of a payday loan. It can be much larger. I've seen 10, 15,000, even $20,000 uh, installment loans. And although the cost is usually lower than that of a payday loan, they still can be very, very expensive, um, much more expensive than other costs of borrowing. Um, and just in terms of who uses payday loans, you know, it's the vast majority of Canadians luckily don't need to resort to payday loans, but there's up to 2% of Canadians uh, in recent surveys that said they're habitual payday loan borrowers. Um, and what's interesting is how this changes amongst vulnerable groups. So for low-income households, it's doubled its 4% incidence. For Indigenous peoples, it's doubled again to 8% incidence. Uh, and for single parents, 8% of single parents have used payday loans in the past year, according to a recent survey. So it can be people really at the edges of our financial system who are really have a tough time accessing financing anywhere else who are, who are being hit with the highest cost financing, unfortunately. And that's the cycle that you're talking about. You owe money, you can't get out of it, you've got to borrow more, more money to pay, and, and on and on and on and on it goes. That's exactly right. So, look, can we talk about some of the charges? Like, do you actually know what, what these companies are charging these days? And, and, and then talk about why this type of borrowing uh, has such a high cost. Yes, indeed. And I'm really happy to give some concrete numbers because I think the way that payday loans are often marketed, it's not that clear that the interest rate is so high. So, you know, first off, you need to understand even accessing the money you've borrowed can sometimes have additional costs. So some payday lenders might ask you to take your loan via a prepaid card and they charge you extra cost to activate and use the card. So setting that aside, which I think is just quite distasteful, but I'm sure there's some objective of saying, well, this is easy access, but I don't just give the cash is my opinion. But putting that aside, that aside, let's talk about the borrowing cost. So each province and territory has some different rules and restrictions. But in BC, the maximum fee for borrowing a two-week $100 loan is $15. Okay, so it doesn't sound like a lot. And that's what you see advertised all the time is a loan is $100, uh, sorry, $15 on $100. Uh, okay, sounds high, but... Uh, if you think the maximum legal interest rate in Canada is 60%, so in the Criminal Code of Canada, there can be no interest rates charged higher than 60%. A credit card is usually in the range of, you know, 12, maybe to 19 to 29%, somewhere in that range. If you actually do the math on a two-week payday loan, that's $15 on 100, that's 400% interest. So six times higher, six and a half times higher than the maximum allowed by law is what you're, what you're actually paying on a small payday loan and maybe $15 doesn't sound so bad but if you actually look through an example and this is provided by the government of BC they're actively trying to encourage people to look at all of their options before they borrow from a payday lender if you borrow $300 with a payday loan within 14 days you're paying back $345 and as we calculated you know that's about 391% interest so quite high um, if you actually used a line of credit and let's say the line of credit had a $5 admin fee and a 7% rate Instead of $345, you're at $305, so about one-ninth the interest charge. Uh, if you used your overdraft, so sometimes people are just scared of, you know, approaching their bank for an overdraft or want to stay out of it all the time, 
it might be a $5 fee and maybe 19% interest. So you're at $307, still a whole lot less than $345 for a payday loan. And even a credit card, if you had to do this, which you definitely don't recommend, but if you had to borrow on your credit card, let's say there's a small fee of 5 bucks to access the funds and a 21% interest rate, you're still at $307. So the very expensive credit card cash advance is going to cost you about 7 bucks. The payday loan is still going to cost you $45. So it's so significant, so much more expensive than other sources of financing. It's easy to see how that can be a cycle that you're paying back the second loan and then you're left short because you paid all this high interest. So you need another loan and then you pay that back and you need a further loan. So, again, the cycle of payday loans is something I see just about every day. And it's just the whole idea of just don't start with one because it's very difficult to just end with one. And I totally understand what you're saying when you when you when you give the other examples in terms of a line of credit or overdraft protection. The average person just doesn't even think about those things because it's a bank oriented thing. I would I would think that's why I I wouldn't think of that. I think, oh, well, the guy's on the corner. There's his store or he sent me an email or whatever. That's got to be easier than having to go to a bank and ask that question. Well, and that's what the, the niche is, the, the value to the payday lender industry is this is providing access to credit to those who might be underbanked, so to speak, or don't have a great relationship with their bank or maybe don't even have a, a bank account in some cases. Um, so, you know, a payday lender is going to give you access to funds, but it's at such a significant cost that we really encourage people to explore every other alternative first. Um, you know, even if your payday loan is because you're going to be late for your rent, it might be worth talking to your landlord. And, you know, if you do it in the right, respectful way and have a good plan that you could execute on, you might have saved yourself all of that hassle and just you know pay the rent a little bit late that month uh, you do need to understand that you have rights when you take out a payday loan so if you've just signed one recently and are concerned about it you've got two full business days where you can cancel the loan and not pay any penalties um, and you always have the right to repay the loan early without paying any additional penalties so those are a couple of your outs there uh, but a lot of people again they're, they're just trapped in that cycle at the high cost I want to mention, too, uh, if you're in this situation and you want to take some action, go see somebody from Sands & Associates. Go see Blair, uh, and they have offices all over the province. Uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the website, or is the phone number, and the website address is sands-trustee.com. And just get some good, free information on steps to take, and maybe they can give you a hand with this. So beyond the expense of basic costs, there are some areas uh, of caution that you think it's really important for people to know about when it comes to this time, this kind of borrowing, Blair. Yeah, a couple of things to highlight right off the top is be very careful with online payday lenders. So a lot of them aren't licensed. Uh, they will not follow provincial rules or may not um, in your jurisdiction. So the things we talked about, the two-day right to cancel and pay things off early, if you're borrowing from an online lender, that could be tough to get them held accountable to D.C. law. And if they're located outside of Canada, it could be just impossible to have anything you know, judicially set in Canada that's going to be binding on them. So just be very careful if it's an online lender. Um, also be careful that sometimes what you think you're doing online, applying for a loan, uh, you're actually just giving your money to what's called a lead generation website. So you put in all your information, what you're looking for, uh, and then they're not going to actually give you the loan, but they're going to sell your information to a bunch of other providers who then might start following up with you with unsolicited offers, calls, maybe even harassment, uh, where you end up with not the best deal, but just the one that, you know, kind of screamed the loudest in your, in your ear uh, and made you just want, you want them to go away. Uh, you need to be careful, too, about upfront fees. So it's illegal for a company to request that you pay an upfront fee to obtain your loan. 
Um, so the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, um, they actually said this on, on their website, and I quote it, uh, is don't fall for promises that you'll get a loan regardless of your credit problems. If you have poor credit or haven't established good credit history yet, it's unlikely that anyone will lend you money without charging large fees. So the whole idea of it seems too good to be true, you know, great loans, low rates, no credit, doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, Generally, it is too good to be true, uh, and you'll be cautious about that. And, you know, finally, you can always check with Consumer Protection BC to verify if a payday lender actually holds a license in the province. So if you do end up needing to take this step to take a payday loan, at least make sure they're licensed so that you do have some recourse through Consumer Protection BC. We've just got about a minute left, Blair, and I know this is a large question for a short amount of time, but what are some of the other real warning signs that might signal it's time for somebody to get some good advice and to get out of this cycle? I mean, is it even possible? It feels pretty dire. No, it's absolutely possible to get out of this cycle. I think, you know, a big warning sign, if you're habitually using payday loans, that's probably the number one warning sign. It means that something is not going according to plan. If you're always paying, you know, close to this 400% interest rate on some funds, uh, you should sit down with a professional to figure out, well, what's the root cause of this? Is it because all of your other debts are so high, you're not left with enough money to get yourself by, and you have to resort to payday loans to, to fill the gap? Um, you know, that's a big warning sign, just even having a single payday loan, let alone three, four, five or more. If you're carrying multiple, you definitely should be phoning us up, have a chat, and we'll, we'll try to get, get it to a point where you don't need to use payday loans. But the biggest warning signs that we see just in general is if you're stuck in a cycle of just making minimum payments on your debts. So you've got some debts, they don't seem to go down each, each month, but you make all your money to minimum payments and you can't do any more than that. That's when you need some advice from a licensed insolvency trustee to stop that cycle, to freeze the interest, to get you out of debt, and you can get back in control with your life. I'll give you the website one more time, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Set up that first consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Well, Blair and his team from Sands & Associates have a really great segment here. It's the 10 do's and don'ts to help you better manage your debt and avoid some of the common pitfalls that everyone experiences when it comes to borrowing. So, Blair, I know you talk to people all over the province every day who are seeking debt help. What kind of situations usually lead folks to you? You know, Elaine, for the most part, it's the unexpected. You know, a lot of people, they're generally doing just fine. They might have a little bit of debt, but they feel okay. They're managing it. They're making the minimum payments. But then something happens. You know, it's typically the life events. It could be a loss of income. It could be an illness or an injury um, or a relationship ending where you've got to reestablish perhaps two households from one before. Uh, You know, those types of life events, you know, most folks are dealing without having significant savings, without having an emergency fund. So when there's a shock to the system, it can really put people into a tough spot. And I'm excited for today because we're going to go through 10 really key do's and don'ts. We're going to get them done relatively quickly, but hopefully give a lot of value to the listeners here. Uh, And let's jump in. Okay. So number one, what's the number one thing that people should pay attention to? You know, I think the first thing is a do, and it's be careful who you take debt advice from. 
And, you know, many, many of us have really well-meaning, well-intentioned friends, family members. You know, maybe we know someone who's an accountant or somebody who's a lawyer. But you really have to realize um, that unless you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, you're not dealing with someone who can give you the best advice possible in your situation. Um, so, you know, oftentimes people come to us and they've taken the wrong actions and they've actually put themselves in the worst situation because somebody has said to them, you know, cash in this investment or, you know what, go get a co-signed loan with your parents, for example. Uh, we'll talk about why those are our problems, but the really important thing is if you're finding yourself in the midst of a debt storm, you've really got to know who you can trust, who you can go to for advice, and be very careful if you're getting advice from a lender, from a collection agent, or even, again, from somebody who's very well-intentioned but just might not have the knowledge to help you. Now, I know because this segment is with you, and or the whole show is with you, and being a licensed insolvency trustee, it really makes the most sense that you'd be the first person that uh, makes sense for a person to talk to. Absolutely right, Elaine. And that's one of the, you know, my life's challenges is trying to get people to call us sooner than they think they might need us. You know, sometimes someone will call a trustee uh, when they've already, you know, exhausted a bunch of other options, you know, perhaps delayed it and really suffered for a lot longer than they should. So if your first call is to a licensed insolvency trustee, it's a free call, it's confidential, and you're going to get the rules of the road. You're going to understand exactly what your rights and responsibilities are. And it's with knowledge comes a whole lot more calmness and a whole lot of a, a better ability to make good decisions for your financial future. Now, I would think that being organized or getting your stuff organized would be really helpful in any situation, regardless of who you're talking to. That's right, Elaine. So that's our second one here. It's a do, and it's do be organized. And, you know, I'm not talking that you need to have spreadsheets, you know, with a ton of different tabs and macros and everything coming together to calculate your interest before the bank tells you what you owe. But as a minimum, you should really be able to take inventory of each of your accounts. What are the account numbers? What's the total balance? What's the monthly payment requirements? And, you know, if even getting to that level uh, is a bit tough, because sometimes people just ignore the problem for quite some time. They stop opening their mail. They just don't know where to start. Uh, where you can start is by getting a copy of your credit history report and just see, you know, does that give you a good base to start to understand your debt? Does it agree with what you think? Are there debts on there that you forgot that you owed? Are there inaccuracies? But you've got to get organized just so you know what kind of a problem that you're tackling. Um, and, you know, if you need help doing that, again, if you reach out to a trustee, we can tell you, here's how you pull your credit. Um, but we've got no greater sources of information than you. It's something the individual uh, is really just, just going to have to sit down and, and just start on a blank sheet of paper writing out that basic information. And I would think, uh, I mean, we know that we've been doing this show long enough that using credit, credit cards, that kind of thing is, is often the, the, the sort of the vehicle that gets some folks into trouble. So what do you do about that? What do you do with your credit when you're seeking this kind of help? Yeah, this one's a don't, and the don't is don't keep using your credit. So there's the old adage, if you find yourself in a hole, what's the first thing you should do? And it's stop digging. So a lot of folks, when they actually stop using their credit, they start to realize, oh, my God, I'm overspending on a monthly basis. And I had no idea because I was just, you know, paying off this balance with the other card. I had no idea I was actually my budget needed an adjustment. So what I suggest people to do is, you know, put the credit away, even just for a month or two, stop using it, get a sense of your monthly budget. Um, you're really not going to be able to see how you're going to be able to solve the problem if you keep going further and further into debt. And if you're in that situation that you can't figure it out, a licensed insolvency trustee sounds like the very best first step in that case because you need some kind of help and you need to be able to 
trust that help. Absolutely. One of the first things we do in a meeting is we sit down and we just start to build up a very basic budget. You know, what's your paycheck? Is it twice a month? Okay. What's your rent? How what's that of the percentage of your income? Um, you know, by looking at that budget and then we can see, you know, is, are you really having a problem because your credit's just too large and all the interest and the payments are putting you behind? Or is it the case you've got to make some hard decisions about where you can cut expenses or increase income to get yourself back into financial solvency? Now, what about savings? I know that um, it just seems like common sense or a natural thing for people to do to, you know, look at their savings and say, okay, I, I, in order to get out of this situation, maybe this is what I should do. Look at my savings, look at my RRSPs, and that's often not the best solution at that point. Yeah, I would say it's never the best solution is to start to cash in your RRSPs to pay your debt. So this is our fourth, and it's a do, and it's do keep your RRSPs intact. Uh, it's over 10 years ago now the federal government changed the laws to protect RRSPs, so they're the same now as a company pension plan. If you have to deal with your debts in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, you're going to keep your company pension plan because that's right and just. You've worked your whole life. You deserve to have those retirement benefits. RRSPs are treated exactly the same, but the exception is you can't go and cash in your pension plan to pay your debts, but you absolutely can do that to pay. You can cash in your RRSPs, and that almost always puts people in a worse position. They're hit with a tax bill right away. It's usually not enough to solve the debt problem completely, and then where is that money when they need it for retirement? It's gone. So anybody that's considering cashing in your RRSPs, that's one of the most important pieces of guidance I can give. I've never seen a situation where that was the right decision. Okay, and really good for people to remember that. Um, I I like this fifth one because it really needs an explanation. Don't mistake payments for progress. Yeah, so there's the, the old adage, you know, just because you're doing something, are you really doing anything? Are you making progress? Um, and I'm a little bit cynical sometimes, but, you know, I believe it, it, it's far too comfortable to just continue making the minimum payments on your debts, and all that does is put you further and further into debt. Often, you know, a $6,000 debt can keep you in debt for 40 years if it's on a department store credit card with 29% interest. Even a $1,000 debt can take 10 years to pay off. So if, if you think you're doing well because, oh, yeah, I honor all my minimums every month, but you don't look at the statements to say, well, you're on the 70-year payment plan, you've mistaken action for progress, and you really need to focus on what's going to get you out of debt. What about when it comes to filing for your the taxes, the Canada Revenue Agency? How do we deal with that? Is there sort of a, a rule of thumb there? Well, the rule of thumb is to file. Even if you owe money, it's very important that you file your taxes every year. It's really part of your civic duty. And oddly enough, owing CRA money is not as bad of a situation as having a bunch of unfiled tax years. CRA treats that as a worse situation because you're not fulfilling your obligations. Um, It also could be the case you might not get benefits you're entitled to. If you're going to try to apply for credit, they usually need to see your tax returns uh, to assess your income. So you really need to get your tax filings up to date. Um, CRA, I don't compliment them that much, but they've done an exceptional job in giving people online access to all of the tax documents that you might need to file your return. So even if you have nothing, you can get online access through CRA, probably get enough to get yourself caught up for a number of tax years, even without paying an accountant to do so. And, and does that mean if you owe CRA that it still makes sense to do that? 
Absolutely, especially okay. I would say if, if you owe CRA because, you know, that balance might even go down if you file the unfiled years, you know, based on some credits, uh, or even Got if it, it goes up, you can bet CRA probably knows more about you than you think. They're able to get your bank records without you even knowing about it. So there's really no benefit of you trying, you know, to, to stay off CRA's radar. It's better to file every year. And then, you know, that might trigger you to say, okay, I've got this tax liability. Let me deal with that with all of my other debts. And if you're going to deal with a trustee, part of the trustee's job is to help you get caught up on your taxes so that we deal with the entire debt situation. Got it. Now, you sort of touched on this earlier in the segment about um, looking to friends or family. Uh, and I, let's go over that one a little with a little in a little more depth because it's super important not to do that. Yeah, it, so this is our seventh here, uh, is don't borrow from friends and family or have them co-sign debts. So I know it can be appealing, you know, maybe a child gets into trouble and the parents really want to help them by pay off the debt or, or co-signing a loan. What you need to realize is if you co-sign a loan, you're agreeing to pay 100% of that debt plus interest. It's not a 50-50 liability. Uh, and if you've co-signed a loan for someone, I have people in my office where I would love to be able to do a consumer proposal for them. We'll pay back, you know, a third of the debt, give them a new, new lease on life. But if a parent or a family member has co-signed that debt, they're really held back from proceeding because they know if they do that proposal, the creditor can go to the co-signer to get all the amounts that are unpaid and they don't want to put somebody in a tough situation. So it adds a whole emotional level to what's a financial matter uh, and it's typically a bad idea. You know, if family wants to help you out, what they should do is tell you, okay, get some good advice and if you end up doing a proposal, maybe we can help you with making some payments on that, but nothing that incurs direct liability from another person, a friend or a family member is generally a good idea. Yeah. And I like this. I like number eight. And it's a don't. Don't pay for that advice. And can you explain that one? Yeah, this one's pretty simple. Just don't do it. <laughs> you know, if somebody's asking you for money to help you figure out your financial options when it comes to debt, you're probably being taken advantage of. There's no cost to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. You know, I typically meet with clients three or four times before we ever execute any formal filings. And a lot of people, after a couple of meetings, they actually don't need my help. And that's just fine. I can refer them to other resources or give them some tools. But you should not be paying anything. You're already in a tough financial situation. If someone wants an upfront fee, uh, you should do your research and figure out what you're getting for it and usually the answer is you're not getting much that you wouldn't get for free with a trustee got it and um i like i like your number nine do value your personal well-being more than your credit score that's right. So any of our longtime listeners will know that, you know, we subscribe to the proposition here that a credit rating is a terrible barometer of your overall financial health. It's a great measure of how much money you actually make the banks every month because you're paying your interest. But a lot of the behaviors that drive a great credit rating are actually the opposite of what you should do to be getting out of debt. Um, so keep in mind, your credit rating can change over time. It's only important at certain points, maybe if you want to buy a house or a car, and if you're building towards those milestones, if you're in debt, it's really difficult for you to save a down payment for a house, you got to deal with that problem first. So preserving your credit rating, usually not the right idea to have overall financial health in the future if you're in debt. And just hit on number 10, and then we'll wrap up this segment. And it's a good one. I'm so thrilled we got through all 10, and it's don't delay seeking help. You know, Elaine, quite simply, I've been doing this work over 13 years now. I've never had somebody say they regret seeking help. I've had almost everybody say they regret suffering, taking so long to reach out for help. So really don't delay if you're suffering. There is help available to get you back on track. Here's the key, and this is the good information for you, to learn about your debt options. And that's really the key here, to, to figure out the best, uh, the best route to take. Connect with a licensed insolvency trustee and one of the Sands and Associates 
its local BC offices, visit the website sands-trustee.com or better yet, call their toll-free number 1-800-661-3030 today. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's called Government Debt Forgiveness. And the first thing when I read this, I thought, okay, is there such a thing? And in fact, there is. And and Blair's uh, the perfect guy to give us sort of a basic overview of some common government debts that can be forgiven or consolidated or reduced. Uh, But the key here is you want to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee to do that work. Am I right, Blair? I think I am, right? You're absolutely correct, Elaine. Folks take nothing (laughs) else away from this segment, just that idea that there is hope, there is opportunity, you know, tax debt, student Mm -hmm. loans, all these other things we're going to talk about. None of them have to be life sentences. And, you know, we get a lot of our news from down south where they've exempted tax debt and student loans specifically. If you go bankrupt, you're going to owe those uh, even after the bankruptcy. Um, But in Canada, government debts can be dealt with, but you've got to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee. You've got to understand all the facts about them. Um, and I'm excited for this segment because we're going to go through a bunch of different categories uh, of government debt and tell you how each one would be treated if you do need to restructure them. Um, but we know it's a scary thing when you owe the government money. Uh, we know, you know they've got more collection arms, uh, more collection activities that they can do almost without warning. So uh, it's no picnic when you're in debt to the government, but definitely take hope based on today's segments that there are solutions available. Now, I'm sure that there's one uh, one that's more common, one government debt that's more common than the other. Which one is it? Well, absolutely, that's tax debt. So you can imagine all of our friends at, at CRA, and I know they're, they're you know, good people trying to do a tough job there, uh, but when you get behind with a tax man or a tax woman, it can be very difficult to get out from under that burden because there's interest, there's penalties, uh, and then what happens when you owe CRA is if you're not making the payments that they want you to make, which is usually payment in full within six months of when they assess a balance, you know, they can start aggressive collection activities virtually overnight. Um, they can start seizing wages, usually up to 30%. They can even see these pensions, which I was quite surprised to see, but it does happen. Um, you know, they can also put liens on assets, and you know, usually they won't do that unless it's a pretty severe situation. But it's also the case with some debts; you can kind of wait them out. You can say, okay, well, unless they sue me, you know, it's not going to really impact my life too much. But the government doesn't have to sue you; they can do these things without a court action, and there's no expiry, there's no statute of limitations on government debt. So if you owe the government money for income taxes, for GST, for corporate tax. Um, If you've got an issue with CRA, that's when you'd want to start dealing with the trustee, uh, because what we can do immediately is we can stop all of the interest, we can stop any of the wage garnishments, we can stop any of the asset seizures and prevent them from starting again, as long as you're under the protection of of a trustee. And there's a couple remedies you can use to reduce or eliminate that debt as well. Okay, do you want to mention those right now? Or should we move on to the next one? Well, let's talk a little bit. So, yeah, if you owe government debt, uh, again, for income taxes, we talked GST and corporate tax, the two ways you can restructure those are either through a personal bankruptcy. And, again, a lot of people think if you go bankrupt, you still owe the government money. That's absolutely not the case. If you're under $200,000 of tax debt, which, believe it or not, I see a bunch of people who are over that, uh, but under $200,000 of tax debt, uh, it's pretty well a foregone conclusion that if you successfully complete your personal bankruptcy, the tax debt will be discharged. If it's over $200,000, 
dollars, it's still highly likely you're not going to have to owe that tax debt in the future. But there is going to be a court hearing where the judge is going to want to hear, well, how did the tax debt arise and what steps have you taken to deal with it? But as long as you know you face things honestly, you're not going to have any issues there. And if it's a situation where you can afford to make a reduced payment to CRA, but it's just the interest is killing you, the penalties and the total amount is too high, a consumer proposal can absolutely consolidate, reduce all of your debts, which could include CRA as well. So you can avoid bankruptcy, pay no interest and pay back what you can afford on the tax debt, which is often in the range of, you know, maybe 25 to 50 percent of the amount outstanding. Got it. I was uh, I'm always intrigued when this comes up because I never think about this as being a government, uh, a government debt. But the medical services plan debt, how does that work for people or against them? Yeah, so that's another government debt. And, you know, great thing in, in B.C., as of January 1st, 2020, all MSP premiums were eliminated. But if you had an unpaid balance, if you hadn't paid for a period of a few years, um, that still remains payable. And all of those strict government collection activities that I talked about, you know, you could still be subject to those. Now, what's really important is sometimes people have an MSP debt assessed against them because they haven't filed their taxes for a number of years. And once they file their taxes, the Uh, government will see they were actually low income and the retroactive premium assistance program will will start to kick in. So if you're facing an MSP debt, first make sure your taxes are, are filed up to date. But second, understand you have complete options uh, to deal with MSP debt the same as every other government debt as well. See, and that's, again, uh, really the, the best reason or one of the many re- good reasons to to deal with, to go and see a licensed insolvency trustee like Blair Manton at Sands and Associates, because they have all this knowledge, this base of knowledge, and they have no personal investment in it other than making sure that you know that you have everything you could possibly need to know in order to go forward and to deal with this debt, whether it be government debt or and all the different facets of government debt or any kind of debt. So I, I, I just wanted to throw that in. So what other... Um, uh, what can you tell us about dealing with debts for government benefit programs, uh, be, uh, government benefits or programs, Blair? How does that yeah, work? So, well, a, pe- a lot of people have a fear that if they restructure the government debt, they might not be eligible for future government benefits. Um, you know, maybe they depend on a disability benefit or a social assistance, and they're just worried, oh, my God, if I write off this tax debt, is the government going to say, oh, we're not going to send you any more money in the future? Um, and that's an unfounded fear. So just because you had to file a bankruptcy or a proposal, you're protected. You can't be discriminated against. If you're entitled to government benefits, you would continue to get those going forward. And a lot of the times, uh, there's an incredible breathe of, uh, breathing of a sigh of relief because someone might have had their government pensions being seized partly by CRA or something like that. And when they file a bankruptcy or a proposal, suddenly they start to get the full pension again because the trustee is able to lift that seizure. So don't be concerned about being ineligible in the future if you've got to restructure your debts in the short term. Now, I know there's a couple other types of debt. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go finish up. Finish the thought, please. Thank you. I was going to say there's a couple other debts that, you know, sometimes we run into, and these are a little bit less common than the two that we've talked about, um, but EI overpayment. So that's something where if you're on EI and maybe there was an application error or you failed to report something, you're also earning income and you got overpaid something. Um, that's an amount that can become due and payable and, again, subject to some collection activities. Now, this one can be a little bit of a gray area. I've seen it go in a couple of ways. Uh, if the government takes the view that there was fraud involved, I mean, it's crystal clear that, you know, you knew you were earning income, you knew you were getting benefits you weren't entitled to, um, sometimes the government can argue, well, that's a debt that should survive a bankruptcy proceeding. But in the vast majority of cases, if there's an honest um, explanation of how this overpayment occurred, it is a debt that a trustee can help you deal with.
Okay. How about social assistance overpayment? Those generally forgiven in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Okay. And student loans, we know those, lots of people have student loans outstanding. Yeah, student loans is definitely a common one that we see, and there's a couple really important things. Uh, the magic number with student loans is it has to be seven years since you were last a student for you to be able to restructure your student loan in full through either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So the government wants you to make a really good faith effort to earn income to get value from your schooling, but if seven years have passed since you were last a student, a student loan becomes like every other debt. It can be discharged or written off completely in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Uh, there's a provision in the law that if it's been more than five years, so not quite seven, but more than five, um, there is still a possibility of you getting your student loan um, discharged in full, but you have to make an extra court application after you've finished either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Um, so quite often I see people where it's been, you know, six and a quarter years or six and a half years, and I say, well, waiting that extra six or nine months, that's going to be night and day to you having all of your problems solved from a financial point of view uh, or having that student loan come out the other side, you still owe the balance. So uh, definitely the seven year rule is what's important. But again, take hope that it's not a 70-year rule. Uh, it's a reasonable amount of time uh, where the government just wants to see, are you going to be able to get value from this student debt? And if not, they would allow it to be discharged as well. Good. And I don't want to finish off this segment without mentioning ICBC debt for folks. Yeah, and I know we were just bumping up on time, but ICBC debt in almost all cases would be forgiven under either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Uh, your trustee will contact ICBC, make sure they understand the substance of the debt. And it's only if there's alleged fraud, if there's intentionally inflicted bodily harm or wrongful death, that's when you might have an issue. Otherwise, just about every ICBC debt can be dealt with by a trustee. Great. And for information on any of these things in more depth, if you're not ready to talk to somebody yet, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's chock block full of great resources for you. Or better yet, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 and get that first consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we talk about consumer proposals a lot on the show, but as you know, Blair, and I know, and Jeff knows, everybody who's involved in the show knows that not everybody knows what a consumer proposal is and how it works. And... Um, I just think this is such a good segment for people to learn about possibly something for the first time that's going to help them in the in the long run. Uh, Canadians have access it's to a very powerful legal process in this country that allows someone to consolidate debt without a loan, interest charges, or added fees. So Blair, let's go at it. What is a consumer proposal? How does it work? How do how do you file one in this province? Yeah, with pleasure, Elaine. I'm happy to answer. I sometimes only say half in jest. I feel like my life's purpose is to make people aware of this consumer proposal tool because I couldn't believe I could go to business school, work at an accounting firm, and I had no idea that this tool even existed. And I was deep into the financial system at that point. It was only when a family member needed some help with that I started to research and understand just this great tool that's still so unknown. So what a consumer proposal is, it's a debt solution that's sometimes referred to as a debt settlement proposal, where it allows you to settle your debts for less than what you owe and consolidate all of your debts into one manageable monthly payment. And it's not for the rest of your life. The maximum term is five years and a lot of proposals are shorter than that. 
So the end goal is to allow the individual to repay the portion of the debt they can afford to repay and achieve a financial fresh start free from debt and not having to resort uh, to a more severe remedy of filing a personal bankruptcy. So the way a proposal works is it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing. There's no new interest charges. There's no new lender coming to the table. It's just by law, when you file a proposal, all of the interest that's charged on your debt stops that moment. And all the fees and collection activities also has to stop. So you get the breathing room. You don't have those calls anymore. And then with a consumer proposal, it's a question of how much can you reasonably afford to repay on your debt. In some cases, people can afford to repay 100%. They just need to stop the crazy interest. Okay, we can do that. But in a lot of cases, a person's going to pay as little as 20 to 50% of the balance. So what that means in real numbers here is a person who owed $20,000, they might say they can afford to repay 30% of that amount. Um, that would work out to about $6,000. And they could pay that off over a 36-month period at $165. So you can imagine looking at a $20,000 credit card bill or a bunch of bills that add up to that, but the interest charges and the minimum payments, what I'm telling you very clearly is in a consumer proposal, that might be as little as $165 a month to deal with the entire debt. And that payment alone could be less than the interest charges on just a single card that the person is dealing with. It's that life-changing. It gives people you know, the resilience and their chance to make good on the amount of the debt they can afford to repay. Now, Blair, is there a, is there sort of a, a parameters of what of what you should owe before you consider a consumer proposal? Yeah, the law gives a good window of definition. So a consumer proposal, you have to owe more than $1,000. And really nobody does a proposal for $1,000. But people do do it for as little as five, seven, ten thousand $10,000 for sure. And the maximum amount is $250,000 of debt. And that doesn't include your mortgage on your principal residence. So whatever your mortgage balance is, that's kept aside. But of the debts that you're going to include in the consumer proposal, uh, up to $250,000 is the level where a proposal can work for you. Okay. And what is it? what does it include? What does it cover? What parts of the debt does it include? Yeah, it's almost easier to say, Elaine, what it doesn't include. It includes just about everything. So just about any consumer debt that you've honestly incurred can be settled, restructured, reduced by a consumer proposal. So the basics like the credit cards, overdrafts, line of credit, your payday loans, all of those, every day we deal with that. Uh, amounts owing to government. People are very surprised to learn that income tax debt, even business GST taxes, even payroll remittances, all of those can be compromised as part of a consumer proposal. Uh, student loans, whether it's private, federal, or provincial. Uh, ICBC debt here in BC, if there's something you're held accountable for ICBC, a consumer proposal proposal can be the only option other than a bankruptcy to help you get out of that debt. Um, even if you had a short following on your vehicle or your mortgage foreclosure or financing, and even if you owed somebody a personal debt. So I think about the only things I haven't listed there are things like child support and alimony. And yeah, those can't be dealt with in a consumer proposal, but most people aren't looking to reduce those obligations. They're looking to make good on those obligations, but it's the other debts that are holding them back and all of that can be helped with a consumer proposal. Okay, so what? How do you start? How do you start to file something uh, like, or, you know, the consumer proposal? Who do I have to go see to do that? Well, you've got to come see a licensed insolvency trustee, and it all starts with a free confidential debt consultation. So if you start to Google consumer proposals online, you'll find a bunch of trustees offering to help you with that. But you'll also find a bunch of consultants who are saying, oh, come to us. We're going to charge you some fees, but we'll get a better result. You don't need to pay anybody to file a consumer proposal. You just need to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. You don't need a referral. You can just phone us up directly. Uh, we'll have the first being as quick as you're able to, and then we'll help you structure the proposal from there. So step one of the four main steps is to get that first confidential debt consultation. 
And do I, what do I have to show up? Do, what do I bring to that consultation? You know, you just need to bring enough information so that we can have a good sense of what your financial situation is. So we need to understand, well, who do you owe money to um, and how much is owed to each? We need to understand your income, your family size, um, you know, what are the circumstances, who's working, who's living where, and so on and so forth. And then what's your ability to make payments? So how does the budget look each month? And are there significant assets? Is there a bunch of money in the bank that could be part of the proposal? Or are you just living paycheck to paycheck? And the proposal is just going to be based on your ability to pay each month. So in the space of our first consultation of about you know usually 30 to 45 minutes when we get all that information together and then we can put together a projection of what we think the proposal is going to look like and then you really take over at this point if we we're in agreement that this is what i'm going to do then you do all the hard work it seems to me well, it's, it's easy for us, but yes, definitely we do. We do this hundreds of times a month, and the expression is that we step into your shoes. So with respect to your debts, you no longer have to deal with anybody who's been calling you, harassing you, threatening you, anything like that. The trustee, trustee steps in like a referee to everyone you owe money to, saying, well, hey, halt all of this activity. You're going to deal directly with the trustee to prove the amount of the debt that's owed. Uh, and then the individual who's filed the proposal, they don't have to deal with those creditors ever again. They just deal fairly with the trustee. They work with the trustee to complete the consumer proposal, um, and then that's, that's all that they have to do. But as soon as they sign the proposal, they get that immediate relief. And then what happens with the proposal is like any proposal in life, it could be either accepted or rejected. So a lot of people think, well, you're offering them back 30 cents in the dollar. Aren't most creditors just going to reject this proposal? And I often say, well, yeah, if you as an individual made a proposal to give your creditors back 30 cents, they're going to laugh and say, no way, not going to happen. But when it comes through a trustee, um, I show them the alternative. The alternative is if they don't accept this proposal, the person could, not required to, but could choose to file a bankruptcy, and then they might end up with nothing. So in general, 30 cents in the dollar is a whole lot better than zero cents in the dollar. So it's almost every case. It's over 95% of the time a consumer proposal is accepted on the first offer. You have a wonderful list of the general benefits to doing a consumer proposal. Can we touch on some of those as we wrap up this segment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think let's hit the main ones here. So, you know, first off, it's going to simplify your life. So it's a single payment you're going to make each month, regardless of the amount of debt that you have, different terms, different dates, just one payment you make. And that payment is going to be significantly reduced from the amount that you're already paying each month for minimum payments, interest charges, so on and so forth. Again, usually in the range of 20 to 40, maybe 50 percent repayment is most typical proposals. That's just a huge savings. I think the last thing to, to highlight here is it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing. So what a lot of people are looking to do is to do a debt consolidation. They start with their bank, they get denied, and they don't know what to do from there. A consumer proposal is going to achieve essentially the same thing, putting all your debts together, but you didn't have to borrow, you didn't have to you know, put any more funds at risk, and the consolidation is just going to be what you can afford, not the full amount and definitely not the full amount plus interest. So it gives you something you can afford, something you can feel successful when you make those payments each month, and you're going to be able to put it behind you relatively quickly uh, compared to paying off all the debts in full over time. And I just want to throw in as we wrap up, a licensed insolvency trustee, folks, they're the only ones that can facilitate a consumer proposal, one. Two, if you want more information, go to the Sands & Associates website. It's just filled with good information about consumer proposals, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for that first free consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. 
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.